welcome to the next session on the history of dissection. This is Dissection as Diorama, Kodikaraish, and the Preservation of a Secret. I might start with a couple of um, quotes about Raish. One was from uh, Jean Plumeur. 1587 to 1679, who was a poet and playwright. He was the director of the Schauburg van Kampen, which was Amsterdam's first city theatre. He wrote uh, the poem, This art belongs to Reich alone, who's able, as you see, to lend himself and this dead body immortality. Uh, Reich was also known for his embalming, as written in Johnson's Life, uh, the Bulletin of the History of Medicine in 1939 by A.T. Hazen. Injected carcasses appear like so many living persons fast asleep, and their pliant limbs pronounce them ready to walk. In short, the mummies of Mr. Reich were so many prolongations of life, whereas those of the ancient Egyptians with so many deplorable continuations of death. I like that phrase. In 1666, when the rather undistinguished praelector Jan Diamond died, the burgomasters of Amsterdam settled on young Reich as his replacement, who had cautiously stayed nearby in The Hague for several days awaiting confirmation of his new position. He only accepted the post some weeks later, on the 29th of December. For someone who'd not moved in a customary manner in the competitive hospital environment up that pyramid of advancement, Reich was a somewhat unknown quantity. After their first choice, uh, physician Matthew Slade had declined the position, Reich was able to secure the backing of his highly esteemed predecessor, Nicholas Tulp, as well as that of Tulp's assistant, uh, Job van Mikkeren. But apart from these few influential men, no one really knew who Reich was. Despite this, he started his job well, outperforming Diamond, who had not conducted a single public anatomy dissection since 1659. Reich actually started his term after only a year's appointment, performing his first anatomy lesson, on the 21st of April 1668, on a hanged woman, Maritia Roloffs. The dissection of a woman was considered a bonus and an auspicious start, Reich receiving very high praise for his technique of dissection. Dissections actually under Reich were more ordered, they were less raucous occasions, with the release under the, the guidance, actually under his guidance, by the Collegium Medicum of a new set of rules of decorum. Spectators, for example, to these anatomy dissections were forbidden to talk or to laugh during the lesson, and there were warnings against making off with specimens that had been passed around the room for inspection. An accomplished artist, Reich was lauded for his new style, one that merged a novel artistic approach to anatomy with a deeply religious asceticism. According to Luke Coymans, the physician Jan Baptist van Lamseverde had proclaimed that Reich was both, quote, erudite 
and a very skillful anatomical artist, unquote. He was, however, firmly rooted with his Reich in the Galenic tradition, and for a long period he eschewed even the use of a microscope, remaining more an observer of the new landscape of science than a true pioneer. When Reich's successor was actually being considered a, a man called Henrik Ullhorn, a Paris trainee who applied for the job in 1724, he wasn't known to any member of the voting collegium and he was considered insufficiently experienced. But in his application, Ullhorn openly expressed the view only seven years after Reich's death that although he accepted that Reich as a godly man and a distinguished researcher, that he was a weak teacher, dissector and surgeon and that under Reich's long tenure, there had been little serious surgical training. So despite the fact that the Reich was the prelector anatomia in Amsterdam for 65 years, there was still a lot of criticism um, around the very sort of political environment. If anything, the Reich was a product of a Baroque age and even slow to accept the irrefutability of William Harvey's arguments concerning the circulation of the blood or the elegance of Harvey's experimental method. So a lot of these anatomical environments, as I've said repeatedly, were very political, and therefore the appointments were very political, but they had a profound influence on the direction of science, which is kind of not how we appreciate science today. Initially, without any particular obstetric experience, Reich actually manoeuvred to become the chief examiner of all the midwives in the city, developing a lucrative obstetric practice in the process so that none could practice in midwifery in Amsterdam without his say-so. His position as prelector further allowed him to influence the forensic outcomes of city autopsies and no death could be certified without his approval. But in his passion for the rather obscure anatomy of the minuscule channels of the lymphatic system, he would become embroiled in such fights over who had discovered what that it would leave him paranoid and isolated. These small, almost invisible collections of channels leading away from the soft tissues and back to the heart have been postulated by anatomists over a century before who were convinced of their existence, even though the component architecture of this secondary circulatory system within the body had never been seen. As an apothecary, Reich had an abiding fascination in botany and in botanic classification, becoming one of Europe's preeminent plant collectors. Actually, the extensive collections of plants by Reich rivaled even the private herbarium of London's Sir Hans Sloane, who was expanding the Chelsea Physic Garden in London, which was founded in 1673. It's a very beautiful um, uh, visit garden in uh, London. It's a medicinal hortus. Reich was uh, in regular communication, actually, with Sloan, who was president of the Royal Society at the time, and he persuaded Sloan to purchase his butterfly collection. Sloan actually had some difficulty in his communications with Reich, writing to him in English and receiving Reich's replies uh, back in Latin. Reich um, took charge of a small hortus medicus, a medicinal garden, located just outside the city walls um, in the Regulushof, 
and was appointed Professor of, of Botany in 1685, when it was decided to establish a more formal botanical gardens in Amsterdam. And there he was joined on the board of the city gardens by a compatriot apothecary, young Comelin, who imported rare Asian and African plants. And through connections in the VOC, the Dutch East India Company, specimens from the East and West Indies, Comelin had already published the pamphlet the Nederlandse Flora in 1683, along with the Horti Medici Amsterdam Lamentis Rariorum in 1697. And Reich and Comelin were joined by the VOC administrator Johan Heidekoper, who was an amateur botanist and who brought in rare specimens from Ceylon, Mauritius, Madagascar and the Cape of Good Hope. Heidekoper, who was elected mayor of Amsterdam, 13 times between 1673 and 1693 actually successfully sold his own private collection to Sloan. Reich ultimately became Amsterdam's longest-serving prelector anatomiae, officiating well into his 80s. He was held in such high regard that when he stumbled over a footstove at home at the age of 90 and was unable to walk, his students rigged up a sedan chair on which he would be carried by an entourage into and out of the lecture halls like some Middle Eastern potentate. Although he was considered autocratic with a vile temper if disturbed or challenged, his pupils flocked to hear him lecture on almost any topic, ranging from his beloved Hortus to the mysteries of sperm generation or the comparative anatomy of reptiles and amphibians. Even though he was by nature inherently cautious and conservative, he was a doggedly enthusiastic teacher and led by example, rising early for daily dissection at his home in the Blumgacht and spending countless hours preparing his specimens in their rigorous embalming before travelling to examine midwives and then back to his home for more cadaver dissection. Reich, I think, I think likely chose the Blumgacht as his home because of its translation as the flower canal. Concerning his work ethic, he was quoted in conversation with his friend and colleague Herman Brahav as saying, quote, Never does the sun rise too early for me, and nightfall always comes sooner than I would wish. That's a quote from Rosamund Purcell and Stephen Jay Gould's Finders Keepers on Eight Collectors. It's an excellent little book. But Reich's real talent lay in embalming, particularly devoting himself to the stillbirths that his obstetric practice would lay waste at his door. For the purpose, he retained one of the most closely guarded secrets in Europe, that of his Lycor balsamicus, an elixir of preservation, that he had professed, along with many others, made bodies appear, quote, as if they were just sleeping, unquote. By the time he had retired, he would claim that he'd dissected over a thousand corpses, most in a state of terrible decomposition and some even infested with worms. By the end, he had left a collection of embalmed memorabilia that had shown very little wear and tear over 30 or in some cases more years and that were in such good condition that they had, quote, seemingly been robbed of nothing but the soul, unquote. 
the artists had done their best to provide snapshot mimicry of the ephemeral dissections performed by the most deft anatomists, as had elegant modellers who excelled particularly during the 18th century and who provided anatomical wax mimicry that showcased precisely what the body looked like inside. That's a subject of a later podcast. Without the new embalming or these types of anatomical substitutes, however, there was only so much one could learn once the body had been opened. Dissection needed to be rapidly performed, no matter how well planned and how settled the protocol of examination. Not even the linkage of hastily configured public dissections to the judicial execution schedule could alleviate the problem since the bodies were not often immediately delivered to the surgeons for anatomization, and those criminals hung or decapitated had suffered considerable peripheral organ damage. The Leiden anatomist Louis de Bills, for example, had in all seriousness petitioned the Hague to suffocate its criminals in sulphur gas as he was convinced that this would reduce the end organ damage he had witnessed with beheadings and hangings uh, and delay in transport of these particular bodies. Many dissectors tried to devise complicated methods for organ preservation, largely formulated around whole-body immersion techniques, which they hoped would permit them to display their specimens to gawping audiences sometimes years after the dissection. The problem wasn't really solved until the discovery of formaldehyde in 1867 by the German chemist August Wilhelm von Hoffmann, 1818-1892. In this respect, Reich had gained international fame as primum inter pares in those skilled in body preservation, producing a collection of embalmed fetuses and children, which was so lifelike that it was ultimately sold lock, stock and barrel in 1717 to Russia's Tsar Peter the Great for his St. Petersburg Kunstkamera Museum of Ethnography and Culture, which opened its doors 35 years before the British Museum. It's an absolutely wonderful museum. And on the third floor uh, of that uh, Museum of Ethnography, as it's called now in St. Petersburg, on Vasilevsky Island, is the remnants of at least the public component of Reich's um, uh, museum collection. In the meantime, short of this great prize of preservation, some excitement lay in the public vivisection shows, and these were popular in the Netherlands, where Reich's contemporaries, de Bills and von Schwammerdam, would enthrall large audiences with the brutality of their travelling shows. For a short while, the pious Danish anatomist Nicholas Steno, 1638-1686, participated in these vivisections until he became so disgusted with the performances that he abandoned anatomy for the church. Actually, he's the only anatomist who has ever been beatified as a saint. In these vivisections, spectators could witness live dogs first pilloried so that they would struggle less and then silenced by opening their chest and cutting the nerves that led to their vocal cords. Um, De Bills in particular became famous as a showman for the speed and relative bloodlessness of his dissections and he was ushered on by those who firmly adhered to the Cartesian dogma 
that the suffering of animals was completely inconsequential and that their live dissections should subserve the interests and endeavours of mankind. In England, however, um, some early scientists were deeply troubled by experimentation that relied on uh, vivisection. Vesalius, for example, bound his dogs in the manner described by Galen, cutting the recurrent laryngeal nerve in the chest as it travelled around the arch of the aorta towards the larynx, and thus silencing the animal. His successor, Realdo Colombo, noted in his writings that bears and lions were not ideal for vivisection, as despite their shackling, they tended to become, quote, too angry, unquote. Pigs, in his opinion, were also less than ideal because of the noise that they made. So they're sort of shocking things prior to embalming that they would do in, in vivisection shows. It did so disgust some English scientists that they abandoned the work. In an effort, for example, to understand the mechanics of respiration, Robert Boyle, 1627-1691, had deprived small kittens of air in a vacuum chamber, only to revive them again to vitality. But he wrote that in all conscience he couldn't continue on with such work. And so too Robert Hooke, 1635 to 1703, in his investigations into the mechanics of respiration, had rigged up a primitive ventilator which blew air into the lungs of a vivisected dog. But the experiment necessitated that he transect the airway and cut open the chest of the animal in order to observe the rise and fall of the lungs. It's likely, actually, that further experimentation by Hooke would have elucidated the mechanics of natural ventilation and presented methods for artificial respiration and crude respirator machines in the 17th century. But the cruelty involved in the study deeply troubled him and he suspended any further testing. Unlike the continent, animal vivisection didn't hold much interest for the English, even if at its inception in 1660, the founding fellows of the Royal Society in London had openly debated whether or not to vivisect prisoners for, um, condemned to death. The motion was ultimately rejected with the minutes of the meeting showing that the general opinion was that it would appear excessively cruel to the public. Cruelty to animals, which had so deeply troubled those like William Hogarth, remained, however, on show with anatomists like the French neurologist François Magendie, 1783 to 1855, acquiring a particularly nasty reputation with his repellent and callous shows of live animal dissections that he would put on annually in England well into the 19th century. It was actually with Majondi a very widespread public outcry when he came to Great Windmill Street in London in 1824 and he nailed a greyhound to a dissecting table prior to cutting it open. Newspapers actually reported his unnecessary experiments which directly exposed the spinal cord and which stimulated and crushed part of the nervous system. Those who actually pushed for anti-vivisection legislation had attested to how much Majondi took a personal delight during these hideous experiments and he was specifically mentioned in the British Parliament by the Irish MP Richard Martin who'd been nicknamed by King George IV as Humanity Dick for his strident anti-vivisectionist views. That whole subject's very interesting. Perhaps we'll make that the subject uh, 
vivisection of another podcast outside this uh, this group on the history of dissection. Prior to Daesh, the methods of body preservation were impractical, but many of their stories are pretty legendary. Alexander the Great was said to have been interred in a vat of honey, but little is known about his ultimate physical state. When Napoleon Bonaparte was exhumed from St Helena 19 years after his death, and in the presence of those who'd actually interred him, he was reported to be almost completely intact and readily identifiable. I don't know how true that is. There's some debate about the integrity of Napoleon's face and body on his disinterment. The finding of Napoleon's physical state was recorded after his exhumation on the 15th of October 1840, prior to his return to France, uh, where he was interred in that magnificent uh, tomb uh, in Paris. Napoleon had undergone an autopsy, actually, on the 6th of May 1821, where his heart and stomach had been removed by a doctor Antomarchi and placed in canisters containing alcohol. In contrast, Dr Francis Burton of the 66th Regiment, who made Napoleon's death mask, had remarked that Napoleon's features had already started to collapse. So it's a little unclear what is true here. Napoleon was reburied in a tin coffin with an outer coffin of wood and an outermost one of lead, and this was then placed into a mahogany container and buried in a pit sealed under stone and cement. That's in the original circumstance. Perhaps they were frightened that he might rise from the dead. Um... Lord Horatio Nelson was preserved in a cask of brandy topped with camphor and myrrh, so that on arrival, as he lay in state, even after autopsy, he appeared as supple as he had in life. Uh, James Bailey, a seaman on the HMS Victory at the Battle of Trafalgar, records of Nelson that, quote, we would bring him home, so it was so, and he was put into a cask of spirits, unquote. His body was preserved in a cask of brandy, actually, at Gibraltar, which was then converted to spirits of wine and lashed to the mainmast, guarded by a marine sentry. And it arrived on the 4th of December 1805 in Spithead for autopsy and then lay in state until burial on the 9th of December. And the body was actually noted to be fairly well preserved. There's a good account of it in Tom Pocock's Nelson. Um, and also uh, by William Beattie, who wrote, uh, quote, the authentic narrative of the death of Lord Nelson, uh, or its added title, the circumstances preceding, attending, and subsequent to that event, the professional report on his lordship's wounds and several interesting anecdotes. Surgeon to the victory in the Battle of Trafalgar, now physician to the fleet, under command of the Earl of St Vincent, uh, and that's William Beatty's book uh, on uh, Nelson's uh, body. Continuing on with this, in fear of stealing the body, the embalmed remains of Abraham Lincoln were moved 17 times after his death until they were finally laid to rest under his tomb in Washington, D.C. on the 26th of September, 1901. And he'd been embalmed... Those who viewed his face that one last time, 36 years after he'd been shot, remarked that he appeared almost pristine, if not a little dark in complexion, with only a touch of mould on one wing of his tie. 
uh, Lincoln's son Robert, who was the Secretary of War under President Ulysses S. Grant, decided to move the body from Springfield, Illinois, after a plot by a counterfeiter, Big Jim Keneally, to steal the body and use it as ransom, was foiled by the Secret Service in 1876. It's an interesting uh, account of it in Dale Carnegie's Lincoln the Unknown. The earliest attempts at preservation were essentially marinations, and for this process, alcohol, and very large quantities of it, was considered effective after original description of its use by the physician surgeon Ambroise Paray, 1510-1590, in 1582, who actually reported placing a body in a wooden barrel filled with wine, vinegar, and an assortment of spices after he'd first eviscerated the brain and the organs and following a bloodletting. Although de Bills, for example, never revealed all of his secret method, he did attest to the fact that part of the mystery lay in a patient and prolonged practice of immersion. In his technique, bodies and their parts were consigned for months to large pewter vats filled with alcohol and spices and soaked in expensive brandy to which had typically been added salt and pepper, alum and tanning agents. Just for one body alone, de Bills recorded the use of 250 litres of vinegar, 500 litres of brandy and 50 pounds of salt and pepper. After this, he would then rub the body in a balsam varnish, as one might treat a nice piece of mahogany. Horatius' lasting fame, however, came not from his taxonomies, his austere teaching style or his anatomical discoveries. Rather, he was renowned for his legendary embalming techniques, his private anatomy collection, and for a series of fragile dioramas, all now sadly lost, that used the prepared and preserved tissues and organs, mostly from stillborn babies, as materiel for moralistic tableau. Much of his fame came from his ability to inject whole corpses with pigments and chemicals and render them lifelike. It was an arduous task for which he possessed an extraordinarily fastidious temperament, often spending days blowing turpentine and oil of lavender into the minutest vessels and then washing them out with a rich vermilion and cinnabar so as to redden the expression of the cadaver. Afterwards, he'd stow the chest cavities of his exhibits with camphorated wine, deliberating for weeks over the precise positioning of a presentation body. Only when finally satisfied would he clamp shut their containment vats with beeswax and adorn his sealed jars with bouquets of rare and exotic flowers. It wasn't uncommon for him to place live insects in amongst the foliage as one of the first recorded examples of a living exhibit or a living tableau. Actually, Reich's concept of using dead material populated with live insects feeding off remains has been exploited by the artist, London artist, Damien Hirst, uh, not unknown for his historical sense of theatre, in his highly successful piece, A Thousand Years, which was first displayed in Charles Saatchi's gallery in London in 1990. And in that piece, Hirst exhibited a cow's head being eaten by maggots, which then hatched into flies in another chamber, and which then fed off the animal's blood. To complete the cycle, the flies were then caught in a bug zapper. So it's a nice little um, kind of living tableau. Whilst others, like the Italian 
Anatomist Marcello Malpighi became ever more fascinated with the power and capacity of the microscope to show the infinitesimally smaller world of structure. Reich clung to the examination by eye of tissues, dissecting out minute structures with a customised hand lens. He had one of the city burgomasters, Johannes Huda, who was also a physicist, grind his lenses for him. Even in advanced age, Reich proudly wrote of his ability to dissect just by eye the minuscule central artery of the retina, which is, if anyone's ever tried to dissect it, a fraction of a millimetre across. This guy was dissecting this in his 70s. Extraordinary sort of story. With an unwavering faith in the visible truths of his macroscopic anatomy, he remained distinctly unimpressed with the microscope, and he was unwilling, in a sense, to expand his horizons by contracting his focus. At the time, for most of the major anatomy debates, he would sit on the sidelines, largely unmoved in one case by the running dispute between Malpighi and von Schwammerdam, who were both engaged in a quarrel about the microscopic substructure of the silkworm and its stages of reproduction. This was of some considerable importance. Mastery of this mechanism was no small matter, since it would strongly influence the local Dutch silk trade, which had been clandestinely started when silkworms had been smuggled out from China. Despite, or perhaps because of his extensive discoveries with the new microscope, mostly on the generative structures of plants or the mechanics of respiration of beetles and bees and crickets and butterflies or the embryologic development of the chick, Malpighi was almost continuously engaged in some form of scientific dispute or other, mostly with those who argued that the microscope was relatively useless. Malpighi's focus, for example, on the bombic silkworm, his Dissertatio Epistocola de, de Bombis in 1669, dissected the physiology of its respiration and digestion and addressed questions concerning its mode of reproduction and metamorphosis. And the issues between Malpighi and Schwammerdam were negotiated into print by the Secretary of the Royal Society, Henry Oldenburg. So these were important considerations, whether you could explain the metamorphosis of a, of a silkworm, even though you're a surgeon or a pathologist. For his embalming, Reich underwent an extensive experimental period, first trying to debride soft tissues with flesh-dissolving beetles, and then by paring away the substance of solid organs with his bare hands. As practice, he spent countless hours peeling small fruit with his fingernails to show the branching, pithy skeleton beneath the rind. One popular method, actually, for defleshing was to use one of the species of Dermestidae beetles. They're still used, and it's particularly efficient, although it's very slow at removing tissue from bone. Some forensic and anthropology units still use them, as in cooler climates the insects are actually powerless to fly, and during decomposition they leave minimal odour. For Reich, did not, he thought, the liver and the spleen so much resemble the peaches in his own garden. He was obsessed with the minutiae of organic frameworks, stripping the liver of its flimsy capsule and separating the smaller bile ducts from the radicals of the hepatic arteries and veins by hand. With this technique, he was actually tantalisingly close to an understanding 
of the segmental structure of the blood supply to the liver that would only be revealed over 200 years later by the French surgeon Claude Quinault, 1922 to 2008, so not that recently. Reich actually called his technique of dissection of the liver excarnation, where he stripped the capsule from its fleshy surface, and his technique also of splitting the liver substance to display its vessels and bile ducts is very similar to the surgical technique that's used today of finger fracture, used in modern-day surgery to bloodlessly separate liver tissue, for example, in the removal of liver tumours. And in this method, the fingers are pressed firmly into the pulp of the soft liver substance until it breaks, leaving the remainder hanging by its arteries, veins and bile ducts as the surrounding soft tissue of the liver falls away. And that technique of finger fracture is now performed with a water jet or ultrasonically. I should say also in 1957 that Quinault described the anatomic separation of the liver into its eight functional segments, and that description has become the standard anatomy used by liver surgeons for resection of different parts of the liver. But Reich was very close to it uh, more than uh, 200 years before. With the relative failure and expense of simple immersion methods, Reich achieved the best corporeal preservation by injection. Although the earliest attempts to inject the blood vessels were first recorded by Alessandro Gigliani of Persiceto in the early 14th century, with some experimentation of this technique by Leonardo da Vinci and by the anatomist Bartolomeo Eustatius, this new method was independently introduced by Harvey, von Schwammerdam and Reich and became the forerunner of embalming techniques used today. For Reich, however, the devil lay in the details since his aim was not just the preservation of the body but predominantly the attainment of a death aesthetic which mimicked sleep. Today at the St Petersburg Kunstkamera looking directly at the subtle distant stare and the suffused rosy-cheeked glow of a baby embalmed and bottled by Reich 300 years ago, the apocryphal story of Tsar Peter bending down to mistakenly kiss an embalmed child sitting upright at the entrance to Reich's home doesn't seem that far-fetched. It was said that uh, Tsar Peter just went into the entrance of the museum and kissed a dead baby, thinking it to be just asleep. Reich steadfastly kept the secret of his Lycord Balsamicus, only revealing it in a letter when the contents of his entire museum were shipped to St Petersburg. In following the recipe, however, in 1743, Johann Christoph Rieger could never reproduce the naturalism of Reich's bodies, and the most esteemed pathologist of the day, Johann Nathaniel Lieberkuhn, was unable to chemically analyse the compounds that he found in the tissues of Reich's specimens. Alas, Reich's original formula, written on one piece of paper and handed over with his collection to the Tsar's personal assistant, a man called Laurentius Blumentrost, has been lost. The presumptive recipe meant we think, emptying the main blood vessels and then injecting them with a mixture of suet, tallow and wax which had been dyed with cinnabar, which is mercuric sulphide, to give the soft tissues a rosy hue. The famed lycra was probably about 50% ethanol, 
since at the time distilling techniques actually limited a higher percentage proof of alcohol. And to that base would have been added vast quantities of black pepper and oak bark tannins. Injections might also have contained talc, mercuric oxide, beeswax and mutton fat. And the colour would remain well distributed if the body was then laboriously shifted back and forth to cold immersion baths and then to a solution of alcohol and pepper. The method has, however, proven impossible to precisely reproduce. No further clues come from an analysis of Reich's magnum opus, the Thesaurus Anatomicus, which he wrote between 1701 and 1728 as a testament to his career, cramming into nine volumes in a mixture of Latin and vernacular Dutch, his thoughts and impressions of a life spent in the observation of death and in its theatrical homage. In it, he implores the reader in a somewhat plodding and at times sanctimonious style to cherish the cadaver as a great gift of instruction, later lovingly describing how one should anticipate any well-embalmed piece to suffer the problems of gaseous bloating, fermentation and even infestation by larvae. The uh, translation of this thesaurus, a very arduous work, has just been made by Joanna Ebenstein. It's about to come out uh, as a book in the next uh, few months or so. So that's a very exciting innovation on Reich's thesaurus anatomicus. His cadaveric preservation skills were, however, so highly regarded at a time when such expertise was indispensable that his techniques of embalming came to not only symbolise the man himself, but I think indirectly his university and even his country. As a mark of honour, the House of Orange invited the Reich on one occasion to preserve one of their greatest enemies, the English Vice Admiral William Berkeley. 1639 to 1666, so a very young admiral, for transport back to England. When Berkeley was killed in a gunship battle in Ostend during the Second Dutch-Anglo-Maritime War, the victorious admiral, Michel de Reiter, thought it a magnanimous gesture to send the British back their own officer, and he asked the Reich to make Berkeley's body presentable after the young naval commander had exsanguinated from a musket ball wound to the throat. Reich was actually able to patch Berkeley up sufficiently and render his facial expression pretty passable for a short display in the Grotekirk, the great church in The Hague, and then for the trip back to Westminster Abbey, where he was buried. And on arrival of the body, Samuel Johnson, who was in the receiving retinue, had declared that it looked, quote, like the fresh carcass of an infant, unquote. And the English government acknowledging the artistry of Reich commissioned for him an honorary medal. For Reich, the science seemed almost less important than its inventory, and he became a hoarder of organs and embalmed body parts and of flowers, lizards, amphibians, reptiles, coins and paintings, choreographing them into five rooms in his house and charging an admission fee that equated with the cost of any doctor's visit. When his colleagues von Schwammerdam and de Graaf set up their own private museums in direct composition, uh, competition, Reich became angered not with the rival catalogues but rather with their exorbitant entrance fees. 
as a measure of the obsessive and somewhat paranoid nature of the man, even though he was reputed to have the largest butterfly collection in Europe, he was most upset with the new exhibit opened by the Damask merchant and amateur collector Lavinus Vincent, because Vincent proclaimed that he had the larger Naturalia collection. Reich was ever ready to engage in a vehement conflict, for example, over these insects, over the Lepidoptera, and considered Vincent's collection of butterflies, quote-unquote, absolutely detestable. Vincent also had the largest collection of shells in Amsterdam, and he'd stocked his insect display with butterflies that were sent by the Dutch artist Maria Sibylla Merian, who had personally collected specimens during her trips to the jungles of Suriname. And some of Merian's insect paintings can be seen in the St. Petersburg Kunstkamera exhibition uh, of, of the Reich collection, as I've mentioned before, along with the remnants of, of Reich's embalming. Vincent had also tried unsuccessfully to sell his entire collection, his so-called Wundertunnel der Natur, the one, the theatre of nature, to uh, Sir Hans Sloan. So they were all trying to offload these European collections. For a man like Reich, uh, whose daily life revolved around the embalming dissection and display of so many species, I think that the pressure of that competitive streak, or perhaps the result of an age where the ingrained dogmas in the sciences and philosophies with which he'd established some comfort were being constantly challenged, led him to recede into a world that became more macabre and more grotesque. Although at the start his stock collection contained the elements of any private cabinet that might be found in any other anatomical collection in Europe, Dr Reich's Wunderkammer, his cabinet of wonders, was rumoured to house bottled fused twins, the eyes of a lynx and even the fingers of a fairy. But this wouldn't be enough, and somewhere along his journey, Reich's ambitions transmuted into something more ghoulish and yet distinctly more spiritual, so much so that he became more famous for his parodied dioramas of death than for anything scientific that he would ever publish. His reflections on an eclectic obstetric practice that included most of Amsterdam's elite had seen him sequester for show some of the hideously deformed babies that he couldn't rescue. But it was only a small fragment of his wider collection. Reich's penchant was more for the moralistic power play, constructing a series of about a dozen fragile dioramas that artfully choreographed the organs and the skin, muscles, nerves and arteries of stillborn infants, save from his practice. In this, Reich exemplified a long tradition that fantasised about all manner of monstrous beasts inhabiting far-off lands and that played into the fears and fascinations of an audience which had grown up with mythical ogres lavishly framed around the edges of maps of the known world. This important part of Reich's collection and his dioramas specifically concentrated on congenital deformities, which in the absence of any understanding of genetics and mutations, also preyed upon the religious sentiment of the masses. Um, such deformities were really widely 
believed to be retributions from God, with one of Reich's strongest influences being the 1573 compendium Des Monstres Prodiges, The Book of Monsters and Marvels, which was published by the French surgeon Ambroise Paré. This important part of his collection and his dioramas um, led the 18th century uh, to be described by the London literature professor Henry Morling, uh, 1822-1894, in his 1874 memoirs of Bartholomew Farm as a time when, quote, the taste for monsters became a disease, unquote. And the Reich's Wunderkammer was, in this sense, no different to the famed collection and illustrated pamphlets put together by the Bolognese naturalist Ulisse Aldrovandi uh, almost 150 years before, which showcased, along with reported human malformations, all of the Renaissance supernatural beasts that were known. Um, Reich's dioramas were an extension of this tradition, his audience having read the stories of ogres and trolls and fully expecting in his cabinet to see in the flesh these miscreations of God. A visit to Reich's cabinet was an edifying experience, part in wonder at the stuff of science, part gothic horror show and part mythological education. His obsession with the choreography of his most exotic and shocking pieces should be thought as beguiling and as memorable as the mythology of Herodotus, and he would often mention that. Reich's delicate sensibilities had him spending his valuable time lovingly painting the toenails and fingernails of dismembered limbs or dressing small heads with jaunty chapeau and collar ruffs to squeeze them into jars like one might hobby horse a sailing cutty sark into a bottle. But no matter his decorum, his dynamic exhibits were like many other competitive freak shows, pandering to an audience that he knew only too well had an almost insatiable thirst for the bizarre. I do this to take away from these people all repulsion, the natural reaction of people confronted with corpses being one of fright, he would coyly write in his memoirs. But in all of this he maintained a certain sense of ethics. He may have been a Gothic maestro, but he would always seek the permission of parents to display an embalmed baby and would frequently organise private viewings for the family out of hours, often many years after the death of their child. Regarding himself as a man of exquisite taste, his choreography would still discreetly ensure the coverage of the genitalia of his pieces with the finest Leiden laces. It was a measure of his puritanical reaction at a time where elsewhere in the city there was a prurient interest in specimens with sexual ambiguity. Rival collections nearby unashamedly hawked their lewd compendia of hermaphrodites and dubious hybrids to spectators who were unable to access sexualised pieces elsewhere except under the guise of medical curiosities. But the Reich remained unique. Who else but Reich would cover a dead baby with the lace accoutrements lovingly fashioned by a mother who would have swaddled it in them had it survived? Who else would have paired a dismembered child's hand holding pincer-like between its embalmed fingers 
the dissected genitalia of an adult woman. And to what occult or subliminal purpose passed their simple shock value or its unprecedented novelty? If the haunting imagery of his dioramas was not enough, Reich would always be there with his small notes attached to each pageant of death, intoning spectators of the brevity of life, the capriciousness of the creator, and of the cruelty of unforeseen circumstance. It was no different than the still-life painters who were around at the same time with their recurring vanitous symbolism that everyone could find in any nearby gallery. But with Reich, he was deliberately showcasing the power of a god and his proclivity for the seemingly vengeful waste of innumerable infants. In a print by the illustrious uh, illustrator Cornelis Heibertz that has come down to us as one of the dioramas, two fetal skeletons signify on one side the laughing Greek philosopher Democritus and on the other the weeping Heraclitus. Although most likely lost on his audience, not versed in the classics, the ancient differences in the articulated philosophy of both was exactly like that of his own times. Reich was a great believer in the classical traditions of Aristotle, and he would have seemed like his own sour Heraclitus himself, and in direct battle with any of his Cartesian colleagues who proposed the new philosophy of science and would have smiled and appeared Democritus-like on the other side. Now he could show his adoring audiences that anatomy could be epitomised in the masks of any playhouse, one smiling against the other's opposing frown. In one of his displays, Heraclitus sobs in lament, we robbed of this sweet life and torn from the breast are carried off by horrid death and laid in the dark grave. These were the sorts of dioramas using anatomy of stillborn infants, but with moralistic messages that Reich was famous for. The raw, unadulterated beauty of these small shows, chastening spirits and shocking sensibilities made Reich legendary. Conceptually, however, they were the product of one man's obsession to which he had inveigled his daughter Rachel, who designed the costumes and draped the fabrics across disfiguring embalming sites and autopsy scars. Both of Reich's daughters, Rachel and Anna, were well-known still-life painters. Rachel, 1644 to 1750, married the artist Urien Poole, 1665-1745, and was foremost training under the still-life master Jan Davich de Heem. Anna, the second daughter, 1666-1741, after a promising start in art, gave up painting at 21 when she married the merchant Isaac Hellenbrook in 1688. With Reich's work, this could only be a folly adieu with his daughter Rachel inciting her to equally impassioned action. But ultimately, it was the unique nature of this collection that contributed both to its immense popularity and I would say also to its eventual downfall. However we perceive these constructs, they were by all accounts unique. The questionable and mystifying allegories organising tiny human organs into the jawbone of a rat or fashioning a pair of gloves from the skin of a premature baby 
sound to me as frightening today as they must have seemed centuries ago. But for Reich, each fastidious montage was a celebration of life more than a retrospective of death, and he would have been deeply offended by any accusation that he was merely manipulating body parts for profit or fame. Even separating us by these 300 years and reading of Reich's tableau, which placed a dead fetus on a pillow fashioned from its own placenta, or uh, one that inserted tiny embryos into the mouth of a snake will sicken some and intrigue others. For some, these little morality plays are mere micro-histories and anecdotes of death, but for others, they are the manner in which any avant-garde artist, even today, might push the envelope of public decency. I think one thinks of history as micro-history, really conveying descriptions through small individual events, it doesn't invalidate the story. Um, in a, a related context, I think the author Primo Levi, in his periodic table, A Storied Showcase of the Holocaust, also advances the idea that the public can be exposed to what he called the exceptional normal, where there's a change in sensibility which may occur only after witnessing such an extreme. And I think through his dioramas, the impression one has is of Reich seeking really to directly challenge the political, the political correctness of his day up to the very point of public censure. But we're trying to equate a different sensibility of that time onto our sensibilities uh, and rules, in a sense, today. Within each tableau, whether it be Reich or someone else, that part of anatomy on display that we see as its artistry still requires, I think, an ethical analysis and moral challenge. Gunther von Hagen's aside, the idea that pieces of humans might end up as entertaining curios strains the public sensibility today, even if it reflects a past that is littered with a laxity that saw the skin of women and criminals tanned and used as book covers for display. Just on that issue, although we'll establish such practice today actually strains credulity, the use of human skin to cover books, which is referred to by the full-blown term of anthropodermic bibliopegy, what a, what a term, was a practice where the skin of condemned criminals bound the records of their criminal trials. This is also used for binding medical textbooks, such as the collection of Don, uh, Dr John Stockton Howe, 1845-1900, to 1900, who used the skin of women as binding for his gynaecology texts, and they're on display at the Mutter Museum in Philadelphia. Those visiting Reich's cabinet were well-versed in the wiles of death, and they'd been inured to some of the personal trauma of diseases that would take up to one-fifth of children before they'd even reached the age of two years. Every family viewing these great spectacles could recognise the homage to a range of illnesses that medicine was impotent to influence, and each family had its own personal tale of indescribable loss. No matter their station in society, all would have been acutely aware of the devastations of simple infections like diphtheria, scarlet fever and measles that we virtually ignore today, but against which back then they were powerless to defend. If life indeed was nasty, brutish and short, as 
Thomas Hobbes had described in his 1651 social commentary, uh, Leviathan, Reich could parody its daily realities through his dioramas. If the pious man could understand the ways of dying, the ars moriendi, and the sanctity of life's termination, then Reich would use the iconography of death to rhapsodise its modus vivendi, its way of living. Realising that it was only through the medium of the ever-present threat of death that the sheer joy of life could be appreciated, why else intone the skeleton of a child to dangle a silken thread holding a human heart with the words of Ovid, Omnia sunt ominum tenui pendentia filo, all things human hang by a slender thread. The comfort of a privileged distance had sanctioned Reich to cover his montages with lurid, moralistic overtones that hung resplendently above the worm-infested corruptions of intestinal, which had still another child playing a small violin, the bow of which was fashioned from its own withered and dried arteries. We might think of these things as incredibly tasteless now, but Reich would have regarded them as pieces of great taste. The transitional pleas of these infants, why should I long for the things of this world, would fall on the deaf ears of other children, trapped in the detritus of Reich's landscape, made from a pile of human kidney stones. In another, the small dead infants straddle an ossuary of jumbled bones and weep into their handkerchiefs amidst an arboreal landscape made out of animal and human windpipes. One standing next to an open vase laments the cruel fate that has denied her of her womanhood. And one needed to know the subliminal clues of these sorts of things. In one piece, the skeleton of a small girl lies close to an open but empty vase, the latter really a symbol in still-life paintings of the vagina. And the impression Reich wished to create with that was of a child not only robbed of life, but of any potential even for sexual pleasure. This was the sort of level of interpretation that one had. The ageing Reich, perhaps anticipating a diminishing public interest in his lifelong work, sought to sell his collection in toto. Uh, but although many prominent visitors had expressed interest, it proved very difficult, requiring extensive negotiations and an assortment of intermediaries before it would finally end up with Russia's Tsar Peter the Great as the flagship collection of his new Kunstkamera in St. Petersburg. More than once, Berhave had approached Sir Hans Sloane about its sale, and each time Sloane praised the collection, but wouldn't move on a purchase. The Scottish surgeon, actually, Archibald Adams, had approached Sloane after visiting Araish's collection to broker a sale in its entirety, and Sloane declined despite repeated efforts by Berhave who wrote Sloane on several occasions and actually falsely warned him that he'd miss out on acquiring the collection because it was about to be imminently sold. Reich then reached out to Emperor Leopold of Germany, whose brother-in-law, the elector Palatine Johann Wilhelm, had just commissioned works from his daughter Rachel and from her husband Urien Poole, but the death of Leopold put pay to a German sale. On the recommendation of the apothecary Albert Sieber, 1665 to 1736, 
who as a rival collector was more interested in birds and shells and reptiles, the Scot Robert Erskine, 1677-1718, acting as a negotiator for Tsar Peter, moved on the collection after Peter met with the Reich and Berhave in Amsterdam. And the transfer was only achieved through rather complex negotiations between the Reich's intermediary, the Amsterdam physician Peter Ganellen, the Tsar's physician Blumentrost, and his librarian uh, and, and his librarian Johann Daniel Schumacher. The final deal was set at the princely sum of thirty thousand guilders for the whole collection, and of course for the safe handover of Reich's secret embalming preservation formula. It's not possible to be dogmatic concerning the integrity of Rice's collection, partly because at 79 years of age he declined to participate in the packing and inventory prior to its shipment. The collection made its way in two ships arriving Omnino Integrum, completely intact, at St Petersburg by August 1718. The collection actually arrived in two ships, the Jufrau Anna Maria, which was captained by Jan Peters Vetervogel, and the Stad Konigsbergen, which was captained by Weber Sievertz. Um, Peter himself decreed that the more precious fetal specimens be separated from the main collection onto a second boat. In preparation on February the 13th, the Tsar issued a nationwide ukaz, what was called the Monster's Decree, which mandated that all malformed babies and animals, whether they were dead or alive, had to be sent to St. Petersburg for display in the new museum under a threat or penalty. The exhibition was temporarily housed at the Summer Palace, which proved too small, and was then moved to Kikin's mansion when plans for a Kunstkamera on Vasilevsky Island were drawn up with the aim of uniting all of Peter's collections, his libraries, his anatomical museum, and his observatory under one roof. Actually, just before his death, Peter's collection had grown to over 2,000 anatomy pieces, as well as more than 1,000 stuffed animals and birds, coins, shells, corals and insects, and a library of some 15,000 books. Following a special invitation from Peter in 1717, the structure of the first Kunstkamera exhibit was organised by Dorothea Maria Gassel, who was the daughter of the intrepid Maria Sibylla Merian, who we met before chasing Suriname butterflies, whose exquisite pictures uh, actually adorn the walls, and they still do. The original catalogue was translated from Latin into vernacular Russian by Maxim Satarov in 1724 and the collection came under the umbrella of the Academy of Sciences. But after Peter's death in 1725, it developed as five rooms of Naturalia, with one room displaying an extensive ivory collection, including the skeleton of the Tsar's personal footman, standing at seven feet tall, the French giant Nicolas Bourgeois, and the Tsar's stuffed court dwarf, Foma, or Foma Ignatiev. A second room included Peter's personal woodwork shop, as he'd mastered the lathe, and also the teeth that, as an amateur dentist, the Tsar had personally extracted. Although the Kunstkamera 
completed in 1728 after Peter's death, was specifically built to house the collections of Reich and Sieber, some of the specimens were dispersed to newly established imperial museums, most notably the Museum of Anthropology and Ethnography, founded in 1879 that's there now. The original Kunstkamera contributed to other museums, which included the Arsenal, the Armoury and the Hermitage, as well as to zoological, botanical, numismatic and ethnographic collections, leaving the current Kunstkamera more as a chamber of anatomical curiosities interspersed amongst a larger ethnography collection. Um, presently, the current director, Dr Yuri Shistov, along with his assistant, Dr Anna Radzion, are in the process of digitally collating more than 900 specimens remaining from a probable 2,000 or so originally sent in the Reich collection. Um, After the transfer of his life's work, Reich busied himself with a new project, his adversarii, providing a platform through printed position papers to protect his anatomical discoveries from those who wished to either dispute them or to claim them as their own. Almost everything that he wrote attracted so much attention that to preserve them, he dedicated these annotations and errata, forming the bulk of his adversary, to Sir Isaac Newton to whom he sent a copy. If his infirmity had slowed his lecturing down and he had dispensed with practical anatomy lessons, he'd not lost his passion for collection, and he started a new cabinet, largely of plants and desiccated bones. Uh, there's a published inventory which he sent in 1724 to the French physician Philippe Hequet, describing over 200 of these specimens. As before, working through intermediaries to the elector of Saxony, Friedrich Augustus, he attempted to sell his collection to the horological and the natural history museums of Dresden, a city being groomed at the time as an Eastern European centre of culture. But after a year of fruitless negotiations, Friedrich, who was known as Augustus II, the King of Poland, the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Ruthenia, Prussia, Masovia, Samogitia, Livonia, Kiev, Volonia, Podolia, Smolensk, Severia, and Cherehiv. Well, Frederick decided uh, that he was bored with the idea and nothing at the sale ever eventuated. I should point out that he was also the Prince-Elector of Saxony and variously known as Augustus the Strong, the Saxon Hercules, Augustus I, and he was a patron of the arts and founded its Grunesgewölbe, the Green Vault Museum of Treasures and Paintings, 35 years before the British Museum opened. So these people were visionaries, but even he couldn't be sold on Reich's collection. <laughs>